Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here's your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am your creator and host of this very podcast. And today is episode 127 on the terrible and the beautiful with Lisa Congdon, world-renowned artist and author and just amazing human Lisa Congdon. She and I had a wonderful conversation about the emotional roller coaster of Lisa's recent breast cancer diagnosis, uh, the decision to talk about talk about it openly, showing our full selves, why we can't have connection without vulnerability, creating art in our own wonderfully unique way, and the terrible and the beautiful we all hold within us. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. It's very inspiring. If you're an artist or a maker uh, of any kind, this one is going to hit you right in the feels. Uh, shout out to Lisa for being on the show. I really, I really, if you're listening to this, you're the best. Um, before we get to the episode though, I just wanted to remind you folks that, uh, we are on Apple podcasts and Stitcher and, and Google and Spotify and make sure you're subscribed and leaving ratings and reviews. It's a free way to support the show and it really does help out the show. Um, the more ratings and reviews this podcast gets, uh, the more um, the robots show it to other people. And we need more empathy and maybe perhaps fewer robots. But um, so make sure to do that. Give us a follow at Yumi Empathy on all the places at Feely Human for all things Feely Human Collective, which is my upcoming collaborative mental health community that's launching in uh, in about a month it's it's coming to it's coming to you in may i promise that is what i'm committing to is may i don't have a date but the date should be set very soon i'll be sharing about that over on feely human uh so check out at feely human on instagram and elsewhere and go to feelyhuman.co that's feelyhuman.co to sign up for the newsletter and learn a bit more about what the feely human collective is all about uh, let's see. What else? Um, I guess that's it. Thank you for being here. Um, I hope you're doing okay. This is was this is another uh, episode that was recorded prior to coronavirus, and we are in the quar or in the coronavirus um time, and uh, it's uh it's stressful. It's weird. It's it's um. It's it's a first thing. It's a first it's a first thing. It's a first time for all of us. So be kind to yourself, be gentle with yourself, know that you are worthy and loved. And uh yeah, I hope this episode gives you a little respite from maybe some stress. Um so pop in your earphones, maybe go for earphones? Is that what they're called? Gosh, I am old. Earbuds? Maybe that's the right word. Pop them in, whatever they are, into your ear holes. And uh, go for a walk, um, get outside, uh, or 
sit in the backyard, enjoy some sun wherever you are. I love you. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode 127 on the terrible and the beautiful with my guest, Lisa Congdon. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, my heart is a colorful tapestry of the brightest of joys because I am here with world-renowned artist, illustrator, and author of many books, including the latest, Find Your Artistic Voice. It's Lisa Congdon. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Nan. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, And just to, I should have done this before, but it's not a big deal. My name's weird. It's pronounced known. Known. Yes. Sorry. All right. There's, it it doesn't matter. My parents uh, made it up and there's technically a Macron over the O that gives it that long O sound and you don't really see that pop up online. So it's, it's my fault. Oh, then I would have known. Because, you would have known. Yes. Yeah. I know. That's I'm it's totally my, my fault. In- no, don't. <laughs> I should have asked you how do you pronounce your name? It's not but a big deal. It's not a big deal. Go. There we go. Yeah. It's a weird one. Anyways, so happy to have you here. I'm a big fan of your work and uh just your heart and the and the heart that you put into your work and all of it. It's it's lovely and I'm really grateful to have you here. Before we get into your story, Lisa, we always start the show with just an emotional check-in. How how are you feeling? How's your week been? Um, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, let's see. Uh, this is a big week for me. I um, I don't know if you know this, but I've been very public about it. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in December. And, um, so I've been going through various phases of treatment and just yesterday I started radiation treatment. Mm. So I'm in the first week of it. So, um, they told me that eventually in a few more days, I'll start to feel tired. But <laughs> so now every time I feel the slightest bit tired, I'm like, Hmm, maybe it's starting. Oh, wow. Um, but all of that aside, I feel, I feel great. And, um, but I've been sort of like in this a little bit of a emotional roller coaster in the last couple of months, um, culminating with this, um, last big hurrah of, of treatment. And so, 
you know, it's weird. I feel really great, but I've been going through a lot. Mm. Um, so juggling all of that has been interesting. Yeah. And not something a lot of experience with. This is right. the first sort of major health problem I've ever had. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, you know, um, first of all, uh, I'm sorry that you're going through that. And, and you did allude to it via email, but had said that you basically just said that, you know, they caught it early and that's great. And, and, but still, you know, something like that, you know, it's such a cultural touchstone in, in health, right? Cancer, the big C, you know, you hear about it. That has to be a hard emotional thing to carry. It is in a way. And it, it's like, um, when I first got the diagnosis, I was like, cause I'm a pretty public person. Um, and uh, have a very large Instagram following. And so I was like, what do I do? Do I talk about this or do I not talk about it? Because I really felt like I did have a choice. But I weighed the sort of the pros and cons of talking about it openly. And part of the reason that I decided to talk about it was because I knew there was this whole world out there of cancer survivors of which now I am a part. But um, I knew that if I didn't talk about it and rumors started that because cancer means so many different things to different people, mm-hmm. I did people to assume things based on their own personal understanding of what cancer means to them. Um, so like you mentioned, uh, I they caught it very early. I had surgery to have it removed. Um, I don't have to have chemo. Um, you know, so all of those things are like really good news. And I wanted to let people know that, you know, speak in case they heard through another source, cause I wasn't gonna be able to keep it a secret from my, from my friends. Sure. And I thought, oh, you know, so many of my friends are in the art community and people are going to start talking and then they're going to say, Lisa has cancer, but right. But not knowing exactly what that means for me. So I decided very early to sort of come out and say, look, this is what it means for me. I'm going to be fine. I think I would have done that even if I wasn't going to be fine, but I would have talked about it. That's important. Transparency feels important to me. Being real with my audience feels important. Hmm. And um, I also wanted to let people know that I was okay, that I actually, you know, while it's been a little bit of a roller coaster and a lot of waiting for news and waiting for the next phase and waiting for results of this and that, um, from the get go, I knew I wasn't going to die. <laughs> so yeah. that was like, <laughs> that's a big one. That was a thing. And, um, and that I wasn't even, you know, there was no threat of that, that this was super treatable. And so I wrote this blog post a few weeks ago, but it was like, the title of it was like, terrible, beautiful, because that's kind of what I feel like this whole experience has been like, on the one hand, you know, um, you know, this is hard and I have to, I had to have surgery and I'm going through radiation and I'm, you know, I had to put a, put aspects of my life on hold for a period of time. But on the other hand, it's been a really beautiful experience. Like I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of gratitude that, that I, that I got the diagnosis that I got and not something far worse. I am overwhelmed with love in my life from the people that, um, that are close to me and people that I don't even know who follow me. It just has been like an unimaginable amount of love and support and affection that I have received that I never, ever, ever knew was 
humanly possible. And that's the beautiful part of it, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and that's one thing I've been talking to a lot of cancer, sur- cancer survivors, uh, many of whom are literally survivors, like people who are surviving death, um, about the experience of getting the cancer diagnosis is that there are so many um, difficult parts of it, but there are so many things that for many of us are really beautiful, like the connections we we're making with each other. Um, and the love that gets spread and the support you feel from your friends is really something that's unparalleled. Yeah. So it's definitely been a mixed bag, but, um, but probably more good. If, if good can come from something hard, this is definitely an example of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I love everything you said there. And there's a lot to unpack. What what I love, first of all, is just you deciding to just own your story, right? And that that's kind of like the p- one piece of it that I appreciate. Um, maybe the most is the fact that like, yeah, you are you are a big name. And a lot of people know you and you didn't want to, you were cognizant of that, right? And you were you so you wanted to like, let's, let's get this out there. Let's share, let's, 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 uh, temper any worry, right. Let's get ahead of any sort of, um, you know, uh, the sky is falling sort of reactions and like, just say, Hey, I'm going through this. I'm going to be okay. And then, and then the most, I, I guess, beautiful part of it is, and you spoke to it very well is it's just the, the vulnerability that can connect us, right? Like you sharing your story and you saying like, Hey, this is what I'm experiencing allows for other people in. And that's, that's, that's the beauty of, you know, we talk about it a lot on the show. That's the beauty of, you know, what good that sort of sharing can do online and social media, you know, that's the good side of it. And it's a beautiful example of that. Yeah. It's been, um, very, I keep a lot of parts of my personal life private. Um, but you know, I've had other health problems over the years and never talked about them at all. This felt different to me. And part of that is because, you know, um, I think it, because it was going to sort of occupy my brain for so long, I was like, Oh, I can't actually push this to the back burner. Mm. I need to be open about it. Cause I'm having a lot of feelings about it. Like, um, um, experienced a lot of anxiety and depression, like in the first month after my diagnosis that felt unfamiliar to me, or at least unfamiliar in any time in kind of the recent history of my life. And I wanted to be able to talk about everything that was associated with what was going on with me. So much of that is wrapped up in this idea of being like this super strong, healthy, productive person. And knowing that I was going to have to set that image of myself aside mm-hmm. and also be people that that's not who I am all of the time. And I think it's helpful for people to, you know, it's like we follow people online and we think we know them right. and then something hard happens to that person and you see uh, maybe that person be vulnerable. And that I feel like is transformative because so often um, we imagine people's lives or creative processes or relationships to be perfect because that's mostly the parts that people show online. Yeah. Um, I, there are definitely exceptions to that. People who are really paving the way for for showing their full selves. But I've always aspired to not be that person. I want to show the positive things in my life for sure. And there are many. But I also, it's important to me to talk about stuff that's a little bit more difficult or even potentially triggering for people like mental health or sickness or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, falls into that category. And 
this was definitely a time where I was like, I have a choice here about how I want to show up with this situation. And I don't want to do it for attention or sympathy. I want to do it for connection and, um, uh, also, yes, like giving other people permission, making other people feel less alone and also giving people, um, more information about me and who I am and that my life is multidimensional, you know? And, um, and, and I think it's important for people to see how people work through difficulty in different ways. And I felt like this was an opportunity. Um, and so that was sort of why I decided to do it. Now, a byproduct of it has been that I have connected with so many people who've been through exactly what I'm going through now. People I didn't know, um, made new friends in the process just in the last two months. And on the phone with people, a couple people I don't even know very well to talk me through what to expect from my treatment. And, um, it's been really amazing. In fact, the morning I had surgery, I walked into the hospital and a nurse or I don't know if she was a nurse, somebody in scrubs saw me and was like, Lisa Congdon, welcome. Oh, wow. I know what you're go what you're going through. I follow you online. You got this. And like gave me a high five and kept walking. Like, Oh my God. I was just like, that's amazing. I mean, that's, yeah. And I do, um, get stopped a lot in public. Um, and that was definitely one of the most epic situations. And then like a few weeks later, I went to my first radiation appointment. Um, this was before I started radiation. They, they set you up, um, so that they're radiating the right part of your body. Hmm. Um, and the office manager um, who runs the radiation department came out, introduced herself to me, told me that she was a fan and that um, that if there was anything I needed to just let her know and gave me her card. And it, it was just like these kind of even in the context of going to the hospital, which I now am doing every single day for treatment, like these really beautiful things are happening. And um, it feels I feel very lucky. <laughs> Because I, I know not everybody experienced that. Right. So I've just been all this amazing kind of connection with people I wouldn't have known or experienced otherwise has been has been happening. And, and that's like kind of the, the really wonderful part of this experience for me. It really it's is connect- wonderful. Yeah. And it's such a um, it fills my heart to hear that because it's it's, you know, we there is a lot of of. Um, I think, uh, discord and disconnect that exists on social media and, and, but, but I think there's a tide shifting in terms of, um, real authentic sharing, you know, uh, for, for ourselves and for others. And I, I think it can be for both. And I, I think it, you know, I would argue that it was for, for you and for others as well when you were sharing, right? Like you had mentioned, um, you know, this, this thing is going to be a part of you, right? And, and how, and, and you can't put it to the backside or the back burner, as you said. And how is that going to impact your art? I'm sure like you, you went through all of those sort of like cycles of thought, like, and so sharing it is very much about like, you know, you sort of connecting with this thing that's, you know, part of your identity right now and, and getting used to that. And then also this, this other beautiful, side of the coin, which is this connecting thing with, with other people and the, and the empathy there, right? Yeah, 100%. In my, in the book that you referenced earlier, Find Your Artistic Voice, 
which of course I wrote before this ever happened to me. Um, you know, I talk about like as a creative person, it's, uh, it's sort of like, I mean, your, your voice, you know, is so many things, but really at the core of it, it's your story. It's like everything that informs what you put in out into the world is informed by your experiences, even down to very superficial things like your style, you know, all of that is informed by everything that's happened to you in your life. And, um, and so if I, I think that, you know, for me, because part of how I make art is talking about what's happening to me every day or like the, the stuff that I care about in the world, um, that it couldn't, that I couldn't do that genuinely without being honest about what was going on. Mm. And so that's part, part of how I made that decision because my platform is really my art and my art is so informed by everything that happens to me. And then inevitably, even though, even from the get go, the news I got was really good. A caught this early, you know, not, you know, like I'm going to be okay. Yes. My life is going to be inconvenienced for a couple of months and I might experience some pain and discomfort and fatigue, but all in all, I'm going to be okay. I could have chosen not to say anything, but I think part of why I did was those things are all big parts of my life that are impacting my work and how I'm feeling. And, um, that was important for me to just be transparent about. Um, and I think that not everybody can do that publicly. And I, that was a choice that I made. Um, but I don't regret it at all now because it feels, um, feels like my connections, you know how they, well, you know, I'm sure you know this, but like, (laughs) um, one of the things that Brene Brown talks about, for example, is how, we can't have connection without vulnerability. Like you can't, right. you can't actually connect with, um, with others. And so as a person who is, um, interested in making connections with other people, not just, um, in person, but also online in, you know, through my platform, it's important for me to not every single day, but often enough, tell real stories about what I'm going through. And this was a very real story about what I'm going through. And it felt important to share. And the the profoundness of the connection just in the last two months is something I've never experienced. And I've shared a lot of vulnerable things over the years, um, a lot. And this was definitely um, the sort of what I got out of sharing this far, um, exceeded what I might've gained by keeping it private. So, so that was in hindsight, it felt like if I hadn't, my gut feeling was, this is something I need to talk about. Um, and I think even if the diagnosis had been far more serious, I still would have talked about it and, you know, might've even been more important, but, um, you know, that, that life is throws you unexpected curveballs, and Mm -hmm. showing up for them in certain ways is, is, is important and being very present with what you're going through is important. And that felt, felt, um, imperative to me. So, so here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so grateful you did share. I want to go back to something you said about, uh, feeling, um, kind of the terrible and beautiful all at once. I think that's an important point there. There's a book. Have you ever read the book? It's called, um, 
I think the title is Everything is Horrible and Wonderful or something like that. Uh, the author is no. Stephanie Whittles Wax. It's a, it's I about, it's, it sounds, it sounds right up my alley. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> so she, it's basically about her relationship with her brother, uh, Harris Whittles, who was a stand up and a writer. He wrote on parks and recreation, et cetera. Um, and he died of a heroin overdose mm. and it's, it's about her relationship with that. And, and I just, other than it being an amazing book, it's also uh, a, a title of a book that I just love because it's so reflective of what we humans are, right? We are all the things at once. We are sort of, we are the ebbs and flows. We are the terrible and beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit more about like how sort of coming to terms with that, um, that reality for yourself has been? You know, I think for me, I, so I, my mom will tell you that when I was a little girl, she would say to me all of the time, and this was probably a reflection of how I was to a certain extent. Um, she'd say, everything is always so black and white with you. Right. Hmm. And I internalized that, but I think to a certain degree it was true. I sort of saw the world in this very binary you know, lens, right? That either someone is good or they're bad or, and so, um, or things that happen to you are either good or bad, right? And things need to be sort of compartmentalized. And I, one of the greatest gifts of getting older was the slow realization that that nothing could be farther from the truth. And the problem with thinking about the life in those terms is that Often, um, you know, I would be like uh, thinking about, for example, um, thinking about my myself. So, so let's say I had done, made a horrible mistake, um, treated someone badly because I was in a bad mood or I was angry or dealt with a situation and then later regretted it and felt an enormous amount of shame about it. We've all been there, right? Yeah. Yep. So if you look at the world through the lens of good or bad, what are you left to think after you've made a mistake? I am bad, right? Right, right. I, I suck. Um, I'm unlovable. And so I grew up sort of, and this is not because my parents were necessarily telling me this, but I grew up believing because I had this very binary lens about the world that I that when I screwed up, it meant I was bad. And because I'm human, I'm screwing up all the time. Right. Right. And, um, so, and I think this, I learned later, I'm not alone in feeling this way that, a, that, a, that a lot of people have this very sort of black and white view and therefore of themselves. And so we have very little compassion for ourselves, very little forgiveness, um, because we are either good or bad. And as I got older, went to therapy became wiser, not just because of therapy, but because of living and making all these realizations and having relationships and working on myself. Over time, I realized that like, um, that, that human beings are neither good or bad, right? We're a mix of all kinds of things. And that your mistakes and your, um, the things that you've done that you're ashamed of, don't aren't you right like they, they're things you did but they they're not they don't um strip you of your um 
worthiness or your like um, your deserving of being, you know, of having love and belonging. And so once I figured that out, I was so much more sort of forgiving of myself when I would screw up or um, conversely, also when other people would screw up, I would be like, you're human. Um, I can forgive you and you can still be in my life. Now, there's a whole other conversation about boundaries with people who continually treat you like crap and all that. That's a whole other topic. But in general, I became, as I got older, much more forgiving of myself and of other people. And also, um, more accepting when hard things would happen to me. Right. So for example, um, some, uh, something in my life would happen that would, um, maybe I didn't even cause it. Maybe it's something I didn't even blame myself for, but that was hard. Something like what just happened to me now, I can so much more easily invite that experience into my life because it's neither good or bad. It just is right. And be present with it. And that is a much easier way to live than constantly judging every situation, every person, yourself, um, constantly, um, and like holding space for things to be complicated and to be, um, not clean and smooth and definable. And, um, that was such an important, um, I'm still working on it every single day, but like, I feel like one of, for me, one of the greatest gifts of getting older, and I just turned 52 last month, is this just kind of like acceptance of the hard stuff in life and this ability to forgive myself when I screw up and not have it mean that I'm um, somehow need to carry around this like backpack of shame on my back and, you know, like feel terrible all of the time and punish myself relentlessly. Yeah. And I have way healthier relationships because of it and um, a healthier relationship with myself too. So that's sort of the long winded um, answer to, to how I got, to how I got here. Oh, I love so, it. I, and I, I mean, I 100% relate. Uh, that's a journey that I'm continuing to take every day myself. Um, it's hard. It, it is hard. It, it's, you know, I, I, I don't think I sort of had the binary piece of it, but I still, and to this day, I'm 38. I still struggle with the feeling of, you know, I make a mistake and then sort of I'm consumed by this, you know, belief that I'm uh, unworthy, unlovable, you know, all of these things. And it's, you know, I always tell people, and I, I, I know you know this, but it's just a good reminder that like, we really have to work on ourselves first to be able to really bring that to others, you know, others in relationships, others in friendships, etc. Yes. Yeah, it's hard, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. It is hard. I, I think that, like, once I began to see how what the work I had done on myself or that I was doing on myself was positively impacting my relationships, um my ability to sort of let people be themselves and figure things out. It sort of saved me from, you know, this need to sort of fix other people or to fix situations or to try to control everything in a way that, um, like freed up all my time and energy to just be more present. And I mean, this is daily work. It's not like I woke up one day when I was 48 and was like, okay, I figured it all out. You know, you know flip I've a switch. Never, no, I've lost middle age and I am like fully actualized human being. <laughs> you know, I still like 
screw up and feel terrible about it. I still, you know, think, you know, I still, that, that part, that little girl who thought about the world in black and white is still always inside of me. Right. And I'm still always sort of constantly fighting that urge to, um, you know, control the, the universe because, um, because, you know, black and white things need to be controlled. But if you're get comfortable with things being fuzzier, then you can give up control and you can be more relaxed and mm. it's such a better way to live. It truly is. I, I've, as someone who has depression and anxiety and had sort of a past history of eating disorder and stuff like that and suicide, like uh, there was a lot of controlling stuff that I, you know, I certainly had no control over and no, no, uh, you know, uh, there's so much anguish, I guess the point is so much anguish in trying to control things we do not have control over. Um, it's a lesson I've learned and continue to learn. Um, so this, this, this idea around sort of allowing the sort of all of us, the humanness, the, the, the good and the bad, the messiness, the, the feely human, as I call it, um, in, I love all the characters. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Um, sort of allowing that for yourself, like how has that informed your art? And has there been a journey of like, you know, early on trying to maybe control too much? And are you finding, you know, freedom and, and, and sort of the not controlling and allowing it to just sort of go where it goes? Well, I think that, for me, art was the less was one of the teachers, mm. one of my teachers in terms of of releasing control, um, because ultimately, like the picture of what you want to create is always just in your mind, right? right? And your ability to translate that into something that looks like what's in your mind is not always possible, and so you know, as you build more skill in whatever it is you do creatively, you're more likely to be able to translate that. But whenever you're first starting out doing anything new, whether it's writing or drawing or painting or making music or dancing, whatever, like when you're in the beginning phases, you're more likely to sort of not be in that flow state where things are coming out of you and they're coming out and they're, they look, they're looking good and you're happy. Um, and so that phase of, you know, beginning or being a beginner is the, I think the greatest teacher in terms of like letting go of being in control or having things be perfect if you are a perfectionist. And um, so in some ways, like art itself was a teacher in the, for the rest of my life in terms of that, you know, I feel like I've often said like the creative process has taught me everything worth knowing in my life because mm it really can be so incredibly painful um, because executing what you want to execute or, or not really even being sure what something should look like or sound like or feel like. Um, and, and just that it feels like a struggle and it's, it can cause, a, it can feel very painful. Like the creative path is really, really, really inherently messy. And for anyone who thinks it's clean, they will sooner or later like realize that in order to learn and grow and become um, a more developed creative person, you have to like enter the, that abyss of sort of not knowing and of messiness and of failing and of not doing something in a way that looks like your mind wants it to look right. Yeah. Um, the, in, 
uh, find your artistic voice, I talk about like the, the beginner gap. Um, and actually it was Ira Glass, I think, who coined that term originally. And it's like this chasm between what you, what your, your taste level and your ability. Right. And so whenever we start out doing anything creatively, when we're first starting out, like we have an, our taste is way more advanced than our skills, right? So we know what we we know what we like, we know what we want to make. We have pretty good ideas about that, but then we sit down to do it and everything looks like shit, right? Or sounds like shit or whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. So, what do what do people do instantly when that happens? They quit, right? Because they're like, I can't. This is so painful. I can't deal with this, right? Children don't don't necessarily do that, but adults do that. Children are much freer with themselves and much more forgiving of themselves. And um, I mean, they're taught not to be, but which is sort of what we were talking about before. So anyway, um, I getting into that state of just like sticking with something in the messiness of it or in not knowing what I was doing was so important in my sort of development as a person because it, it kind of like built my um, my grit or whatever mm-hmm. around sitting with discomfort, which I've gotten really good at, <laughs> um, other parts of my life as well. Like I just started making ceramics Oh, cool! last year and now I'm really getting deeper into it. And so people are always asking me, how's your ceramics going? And I'm like, it's so exciting and so frustrating all at the same time. And that's because, you know, there's like all this chemistry in ceramics that you can't control or you can't control unless you know what you're doing. And so, you know, things have blown up in my kiln and, and I've like spent hours working on things that looked horrible after they came out of the firing, (laughs) you know, just all the things like you just have to give up control. And like, I'm like, Oh wait, I'm a beginner again. Like I've gotten really good at painting and drawing because I've been doing it for 20 years, but like, this is totally new. Oh, I remember what this feels like. And I feel like it's super important to, you know, experience that. And so I actually, when I'm feeling that sort of like lack of control in my creative process that you were asking me about, I have to try to remember like, this is good, right? Mm. This is like, this, this means I'm out of my comfort zone. This means I'm trying something new, which really is at the heart of creativity. Cause if you made the same painting or drawing every single day, it would be boring and it wouldn't really be a creative process. Right. Right. That doing something new, trying something new is really like creativity. That's the definition of it. And so um, I try to remind myself that when it's painful or when I feel like I don't have control over what I'm making or doing, um, that I'm actually learning and growing. And I learned that lesson pretty, pretty early on. I'm self-taught. I never went to school. So I would just sit around and make things in the privacy of my own house until I felt comfortable enough to share what I was doing. And, um, I had no one telling me like, that sucks, but don't worry about it. It'll get better. I had to sort of figure that out on my own. And fortunately I did. So it's really just a matter about like, of, you know, continuing to show up even when your idea of what you want to make is, you know, so much more advanced than what you're able to do at the time being. So, right. How much yeah. is our, like, I, I, I would call myself a creative person. I, I don't paint or make art in the traditional sense, but so 
this question comes from that context. Like how much um, of sort of being an artist is about sort of let, you know, we talk about letting go to the, go of the control and sort of being, being in the discomfort. Um, how much of it is about sort of uh, even letting go of the, the shoulds that we're thinking that we should be doing, like it should look this way or, you know, the influences of our culture, other people in the art world, like, this is what art should look like. This is what it should look like. How much are we informed by that? And how much should we maybe not uh, sort of pay attention to that or maybe pay attention to just a little bit of it? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's such an important question. I, um, I think that we are in a time, for the first time in history, we're actually seeing, because of the internet and um, so many people able to share their creative processes. I think we're starting to redefine what the shoulds are, but, um, for years it's true. Like, um, you know, I imagine what it must've been like to be like an abstract artist back in, you know, the thirties or forties or fifties when abstraction was so new and what it meant to be a, a good artist was to be able to render something realistically, right? Like, to perfection and um, that what is art is sort of ever evolving. And um, so, you know, for me, like a lot of what I struggled with in the beginning was, yeah, I, in order to um, be taken seriously, I have to learn how to draw things and I need to be able to draw them well. And, you know, I realize now that, that's complete bullshit. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) but at the time I, I remember, um, being introduced to work that's more similar to the kind of work I make now, which is, um, I do make some abstract work. I, I still work representationally. Like I draw actual things and I can draw pretty well, but I choose to draw things very minimally or like very simply as a matter of choice. Right. And somebody might think, well, my kid could do that or, I could draw that way. Um, And while that may be true, the idea is it's not how I'm rendering something. It's that I'm rendering something in a way that is sort of unique to me. So um, it's not that I'm making something. And in fact, I think it's actually more interesting. And I don't know if more creative is the word, but maybe when you make something that looks different than the way something looks I think it's it's amazing when people can draw and paint things perfectly from sight. Mm. I think that's an amazing skill. Yeah. Minds that can do that blow me away. But to me personally what's more interesting is the wonkiness in people's art or people taking things and drawing and painting or rendering them in their own way. And when I I started teaching painting and drawing a handful of years ago and one of my core messages was what I'm teaching you is not how to draw the thing that's in front of you so that it looks like the thing. Exactly. I'm teaching you a creative process where you can get to the place where you're drawing that thing in your way. And that the, all the ways that your work looks different from the actual thing is what makes your work special, not bad. Hmm. And that was a process I had to get to myself, right? Um, I remember I had like terrible imposter syndrome when I first kind of 
started to make a living as an artist because I was like, well, I didn't go to school. I didn't learn the proper way to draw, you know, and I had all of this pressure on myself to to learn to draw and paint realistically. And I went through this phase where I just drew portraits of famous people and would copy photographs of famous people and, um, you know, try to get really good at that, even though it wasn't bringing me a tremendous amount of joy. <laughs> you know, it just felt really <laughs> Um, what I really wanted to do was probably more what I'm doing now. And I finally freed myself up to get there. And when I finally freed myself up to sort of develop my own personal style that um, that I eventually kind of got to was when I started having fun. And when I started, my career started to really take off and people started to really respond to my work. And so I think we do need to pay attention to those voices if, if they exist for anyone listening. And it's important to remember that like your voice as an artist, if you aspire to make art or be a writer or a musician or a dancer or anybody who does creative work, a maker of any kind is um, your voice or your work are like sort of um, what makes them special is what's different about them and what's wonky and potentially even messy or, um, you know, whether it's intentional or not. And that is, I don't know, so much more interesting and exciting than learning to make art in one specific way. And I do think that the art world and the art community, um, appreciates that too. Um, and we're seeing more and more examples of it out in the world now because more and more people are able to share their creative process online Yeah, and it's much smaller. So we're seeing all these different examples of what it means to be an artist and what it means to make art and what that art can be about. And, um, it's really kind of an exciting time actually, I think. Yeah. And you know, I think what you're saying very beautifully is, is ultimately the, the art needs to come from like, it's, it's sort of like a mirrored process, right? Like, we as a, you know, me as an artist or a maker, like my, my own sort of wonkiness, my own sort of humanness needs to be reflected uniquely in the art. It doesn't need to be, but like it, it, I shouldn't say should it, it's, it's a reflection of that. And because we are all like, you know, I believe and maybe it's cliched, but we are all unique in that way. And we can all bring some, we can all bring ourselves to the thing, uh, because we're the one doing the thing and that's that's right. our sort of no unique thing like that's right there's no one like you in the world exactly um my friend andy miller who has this great podcast called creative pep talk he's also an illustrator and he he talks about it as being your your like you're in your dna like as much as you might want to try to be an artist that makes work that's exactly like this person who you admire it's you know, you might actually even get called out for copying that person, but like really ultimately what you make, unless you're tracing it directly and copying it directly, if you're, even if you're trying to riff off somebody else's idea, it's always going to be yours because yeah. you are you and your hand is yours and your brain is yours and the way things get translated through you, your brain is yours. And like, um, and that's actually such a cool thing. And simultaneously, there's like big ideas out in the world and oftentimes we just call them trends, right? So you'll see work that looks really similar out in the world like, oh, that person's work kind of reminds me of this person's work. And that's because the world is so small and there's all this sort of imagery that is floating around that 
we're all really inspired by at a certain time, right? Yeah. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's actually kind of a beautiful thing. It's like we're all sharing ideas and we're all just sort of putting them down slightly differently um, on paper or canvas or whatever. And um, and there's just like this this way that you can't help but be you, you know, as much as you might try to be something else, it's always going to be you. And embracing that and owning that, I think is, is important. Like what makes my work different, even if it's ever so slightly, Yeah, that's what makes your work yours. And that's a good, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so this is maybe, this is kind of like a personal question. Um, I, so I'm, I'm doing this empathy workshop at, uh, this week, actually in a couple of days as of this recording. And it's at a, a local, um, it's at Laguna college of art and design. It's a illustration class. And I was invited cool. by like the illustration teacher there to do this empathy sort of slash art workshop. And so my, I guess my question to you is, like I have the outline and I feel pretty good about like the workshop going into it, but these are, you know, these are freshmen, sophomore, you know, I think maybe some junior sort of illustrators. What, like you've done some speaking I know and, and some of this kind of stuff, like what, what is, what is the key? Like, what is the, what is the, when you go into like a classroom or you go in to speak in front of people, like what, what are you trying to relay ultimately? Maybe it's all the stuff we were, we were just talking about, but like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is give me specific advice. I'm just kidding. But like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I guess I'm kind of nervous because I don't do a lot of it. Um, but I want to make sure I reach them, you know, and, and, and also reach their, you know, I'm not like a, I don't, I'm not necessarily, I'm not an illustrator, right? I'm not, I don't have that framework of looking at the world. And so I want to reach them through my language, which is empathy and mental health and things like that. What advice would you give to me or to anyone talking to and trying to sort of breach those worlds? I think the first thing, the most important thing, and I'm sure you've already thought about this, but is um, to talk about your own experience because mm, yeah. What I found is that if I ever have tried to go talk about any topic without introducing who I am and what my experience is with the thing, um, it's really hard, especially for young people. It's hard for anyone to take you seriously, but it's especially hard for young people. Right. So um, the first thing, I, first piece of advice would be to go in and tell your own story. Because the minute you, every young person today, if they haven't dealt with depression or anxiety or mental health, other mental health issues themselves, they are in a relationship, either a friendship or a love, a romantic relationship or have a family member who is. And every mental health touches everyone. And it's a hard thing to just sort of like walk in and talk to a bunch of strangers about, but I think um, you will break down so many walls, especially with young people. If you just go in and are real and tell your own story, because immediately they're going to be like, Oh, I, uh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Oh, that reminds me of my boyfriend or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, telling your own story, owning it, and, um, and then 
from there, I, I think it's going to make whatever the sort of greater point is, um, much easier. And I do think once you've sort of modeled talking about your own experience, then giving them the opportunity to do the same. Yeah. At some point, you know, you want to introduce and do your lecture or whatever, but, um, and give them a framework for thinking about mental health and empathy, but also then give them the opportunity to talk about their own experience because that's really where connection happens, right? You're yep. being vulnerable. That gives me permission to be vulnerable too. And I'm imagining that this teacher is invited you in because he or she probably smartly is thinking like, I think their work will deepen or their understanding of their own work and their own creative process will deepen if they have a better understanding of themselves yeah in relationship to mental health and empathy and um and i think that's absolutely true like in some ways i wish that kind of curriculum was part of every program mm. in school i my goal is for that to be and i thank you so much for that advice and it's 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 was the plan is the plan and so Good. thank you for yeah. validating validating that <laughs> i really appreciate it yeah that's the goal like this is actually a really uh, awesome opportunity um i'm doing it at lcat and chapman and um and the goal like i'm i've been building this like new sort of collaborative mental health business that that the goal is really to get get into businesses and do workshops on empathy and mental health and stuff um, you know, fully, but you know, I'm one person, so it's going to take some time, but yeah, this is a good first step and I'm pretty excited. That's awesome. Yeah. I love thanks. it. Thank you. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question here from Mary Ann. Uh, she's at Mary Ann Wettler, W E T T L E R on Instagram. She says, when you had major burnout, how did you talk to yourself? How did you take steps to get out of that? What specifically did you do? So I did, and this person may know this already. Um, in fact, she probably does. I, because I've talked about it pretty publicly. Um, I experienced a pretty much like in old school language, we'd call it a nervous breakdown. Hmm. Um, back in 2016, I woke up one morning and I was like, holy crap, I am miserable. Um, I, my body was beaten down. I had insane headaches and neck and back pain from drawing constantly. I, um, was depressed, um, experiencing pretty intense anxiety, um, exhausted. Um, and, I was at the end of a book tour and um, also had simultaneously signed up for like a bajillion client projects and um, was finishing up another book project, which was probably one of the hardest book projects I've ever worked on. It's not a book of my own. It was a book I illustrated for somebody else, but it was really intense and very fast timeline that I had to do it on. And I just made a commitment to myself that day, four years ago, not quite four years ago, I think it was in April or May of 2016, I said, I, this is the first day of the rest of my life. I am going to um, start changing how I show up in the world. And I can't keep, this isn't sustainable yeah. for me. I had been working like a dog um, for a really 
I don't know what that where that phrase "working like a dog" comes from. It sounds funny to say it because mm-hmm. dogs don't actually work very hard, but I guess some dogs do. <laughs> some dogs do. Working like a, a working dog. Um, <laughs> I mean, for for years, and it made a lot of sense in the beginning for me to to sort of hustle um, to launch my career. But at that point, it no longer made sense because I had was making a decent income. There was no reason why I needed to continue to take on as much work. There was a demand for my work. So I wasn't saying no to any project. I was saying yes to everything. Mm. So I decided that day forward to to start making changes. And it took me, I'm on a, a sort of semi-sabbatical this year where I'm, um, I'm wrapping up some client projects from last year that have bled into this year, but I'm not taking any new client jobs except for a couple of like pro bono kind of um, community things that I feel really strongly about. And um, a lot of the work that I'm doing this year is, is, again, stuff I started last year, but I'm really just taking the year off. But it took me four you know, years to get to this place where I could actually take t- time off because so many of the projects that I was working on were long-term projects. Mm. And so I, it's like the train left had left the station, so to speak, and I couldn't just jump off the train. Well, I suppose I could have, but I would have that what I didn't want to sort of bail on any projects. So I was like, all right, what I'm going to do starting today is I'm going to set up new kind of ideas about how I want my life to look. And I want to set up new parameters for how much work I can take on at one time so that I can slowly get myself out of this cycle of working all of the time. So I can slowly start to not feel burned out. So I started that four years ago. And it the first year, it looked like taking taking on fewer things, practicing saying no, being realistic with myself about what I could handle. And on the one hand, you know, my career was really blowing up. So this was an exciting time for me and I wanted to do it all. I just knew I couldn't. So yeah. first year I just practiced baby steps, you know, um, I started exercising more. I started working on my diet more and eating better. I started um, doing, you know, managing my time where I was taking regular breaks between things. So I wouldn't have as much, um, neck and back pain. Where did, Um, sorry, I, where did all of this come from? Like, where were you, were you informed, you know, from therapy or just talking to people? Therapy at the time, I just kind of like instinctively knew if Mm. I, what I started to visualize, and this is what I recommend for anybody who's experiencing burnout or afraid of burnout, begin to visualize what, a perfect, there is no such thing as a perfect life. I hate that word, but like if you could sort of live your life in any way with just the right amount of pressure, because you know, some pressure is good for you. Some projects, you know, having stuff to do is good, but you don't want too much that you're going to feel trapped, right? Right. And exhausted because you're working all the time. So what does that look like? And then begin um, working toward that. And that requires having boundaries, which means you have to say no sometimes. You can't say yes to every opportunity that comes your way or every person that wants to work with you. You have to, at five o'clock, say, I've done enough for today and I'm going to turn off my computer and go eat dinner and enjoy my evening with my person or with my friends or with my dog or whatever. Um, it, you know, and There's I just balance. sort of, right, I started to say, like, what would my life look like? if I was living it in a way that would be healthier because I wasn't living a healthy life at the time. And I decided that I needed more exercise. I needed to eat better. I needed to have more downtime. I needed to feel less pressure. And so every single year I just started 
stripping away and creating more boundaries. Meanwhile, I was still also working on a lot of projects that I had signed up for. Like I just finished a book literally today. Wow. That Congrats. I've been working for three years. Wow. So in my world, the world of books, projects sometimes take that long. Sometimes they only take a year. Sometimes they only take six months, but sometimes they take a really long time. And so, you know, I had to wrap things up and then I had to start planning like, oh, I think because I've saved enough money or I have the potential to save enough money that I'm going to, you know, take, um, take a sabbatical, like a, a, a gap year, <laughs> you know, where I just mm-hmm. kind of make my own personal work and I just experiment with ceramics and I play and I sleep in and I ride my bike and I, you know, I do all the things that I wish I had more time for. Like this is the year to do that. I'm not sitting around staring at the ceiling. <laughs> Nothing. I'm definitely like, and it was I actually really good you doing that. for a cancer diagnosis too. Cause I'm like, I've had to rest a lot, you know, yeah. and it's good that I have my usual work schedule. Last year was a little bit nuts because I was working really hard to wrap things up by this year. And, um, but I finally got here. And so now this year is about, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm over the burnout. I don't feel burned out anymore. I'm going to take this year, enjoy my, you know, my, um, my experience of living a slower life. And now I'm going to start to think about my future. What do I want my future to look like? And do I want it to look any different than it looks now? If so, how, what am I willing to let go of that is traditionally caused me to feel burned out? Hmm. It just requires a lot of introspection and a lot of boundaries and a lot of, um, the reason we get ourselves into pickles where we're, we're burned out, we get burned out is because of boundaries. Like we don't, we're not saying no, we're not prioritizing our own health, mental health, physical health. Yep. Um, and you really have to put yourself first in order to not burned out, you know, or in order to not burn out. Um, and that was so hard for me because I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> same. And, recovering, um, recovering people recovering, pleaser. Yeah, same. And, um, and so you'll notice on my Instagram, there's a lot of art and posts about that, Mm. about, you know, take putting yourself first and having boundaries. Yeah. Um, I love your, uh, notes to self print. Yes. That came out of that exploration. You asked like, were you in therapy? Was anyone? No, not. I mean, a lot of this just came from trial and error, me thinking about it, journaling about it, talking to friends about it, reading about it. Um, getting permission from other people who have also been doing this work. And um, so it's, you know, it's, and it's still something I'm working on every single day. Yeah. Um, it never ends. And, uh, but I'm getting there. So. <laughs> oh, is there an air there? You know, well, there, like there isn't, isn't right? Thing, like that's another thing I talk about is like this, this notion that someday we'll arrive. Hmm. And we never, you never arrive. Yeah. You never arrive, never arrive. And that's like, oh, that's terrifying and horrible. But it's also like really amazing when you think about it. Like that's, if you can just relax into the fact that there's always going to be another challenge, but it's also an opportunity to learn something and to grow or to connect with another person, like then it's maybe not so, so terrible. Yeah. I I love everything you said. And it's such a, cause you're right. Like there's such a, when we're like it, in the sort of like fervor of like doing our thing, doing our thing, we're passionate about this thing, we're passionate about it, we're doing it all the time, we're doing it all the time. And 
it it could potentially lead to like us becoming sort of disenfranchised or or you know feeling less excited about the thing because we're just in it all the time and we're not creating the space for the introspection and the and the the balance you know that you're talking about or just to be present like we are like I realize like I'm part of this like capitalist machine that wants me to be super productive and by the way I teach like an a a, a like top selling class on creative life on productivity I have mastered it mm. out of necessity you know and I I don't have shame about that but I also am like wow, you know, that's how intense it got for me that I got so good at doing so many things in a short period of time that, um, that I actually can teach other people how to do the same. And, and I do think there are benefits to like time management and time blocking for sure. Even, even in terms of having more self care moments. And, um, but I, I, I do feel like I was also caught up in this notion that, my identity was defined by my ability to be productive and to make a lot of things and to have other things that other people were consuming. That became part of who I was. And it became the part of who I was that I didn't like anymore and that was not bringing me joy. So, But we become our- comfortable with those identities. Exactly. And that's like the world tells us that in order to be successful, we need to be, you know, productive and making the things and doing all the things crushing life crushing life and like i think that's how a lot of people view me and there's part of me that's like i don't necessarily want to be viewed that way like i'm also an athlete i also um you know have some pretty hefty athletic endeavors that i embark on and um and i you know i do that because i love it but i also have to keep that in check too like um you can burn out on that as well like i'm just I've gotten very caught up in, you know, in my life and like doing all the things and it often can feel like it's never enough. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and this notion that you'll never arrive doesn't mean that it's never enough. Um, it doesn't mean you have to work harder. It just means actually that it's more important to, to relax into, you know, the present moment. And, um, because we miss out on so much because if we're working all of the time or, trying to achieve these goals, you know, um, sort of like above anything else, like ultimately um, we're going to be unhappy, um, tired, depressed, anxious, um, and not experiencing what's right in front of us, which is like the beauty of the present moment, right? Yep. I'm reading this great book right now by by actually this old friend of mine. Her name's Jenny O'Dell. It's called How to Do Nothing. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list in the last month or so. Because I think this notion is really, um, you know, that she's that she talks about is really um, resonating for a lot of people. And that is like we are in an uh, she calls it the like this attention culture, right? That like everything is about, um, you know, getting our attention, right? Mm. We are just constantly distracted by a million things and told that we're that we need to be productive and that we need to be working and that she found herself in that situation and then really decided um, to kind of like retool her life and to be more present. And she started all of these practices, which she eventually wrote about in this book. And then she studied, studied, um, you know, this sort of this idea of like, how did we become this culture? You know, how did we become this culture that we are today? And um, it's really making me think differently about my art, my place online, 
like today I woke up and normally five days a week I post something, even if it's old work. And I had this kind of breakthrough this morning. I was like, I definitely don't post on the weekends anymore. But I was like, I think I'm not going to really go on social media today. And like, good for you. There was a time, even six months ago, where that would have been unfathomable to me. Mm. Like, it's this idea that I'm sort of like generating content as part of my business. And I was like, I don't feel like it. I don't have anything to say. I'm actually kind of in a bummer mood. This was this morning. Yeah. And I'm not. And then I was like, who am I doing this for anyway? And so I still am just sort of like continually like making my own personal breakthroughs in terms of what is, why am I doing this? Questioning everything and trying to think about how I can be more present and more happy and still do my work. Um, but not, not feel exhausted and burned out anymore. And that's such a long answer to Marianne's question. <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed you remembered her name. <laughs> I think that's her name. Yes, that's her name. Good job. <laughs> It was a beautiful uh, answer to Marianne's question. And thank you, Marianne, for that question. Um, so we'll start to wrap up. I, I'm curious, like when with, you know, 2020 being sort of the year of this sort of semi sabbatical, you know, uh, lots of bike riding, you know, sleeping in sort of what you have a book that you just finished, like what, what, what sort of what are you working on? What is, what is going on sort of art wise? Well, um, one of the really cool things about this year is that I had already scheduled, I have a solo show that opens in a gallery in June. And so I do have this thing that I'm working toward, but it, it's not a thing that I do a lot of. Like the last time I had a solo show was two years ago and I was really busy while I was preparing for it. So it was a lot of like churning out the stuff I knew how to do. And I had had an, I actually had two shows that year. That was in 2013. Um, and so, or 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. What are we at? Yeah, I can't even, I can't even count anymore. We're at 2018. Sorry, not 2013, 2018. It was the last time I had a show. And actually I had another show in 2017. And I was, um, you know, this is a a time for me, like so much of what I work on on a day-to-day basis is digital. So I'll, I draw on my iPad and, um, ironically, my iPad died yesterday, literally is unresponsive. And I think it's a message from the universe. I need to go have an appointment at the genius bar in an hour. And, um, I need to get my iPad looked at, but I'm, I'm going to buy another one. I think a new one today. I think my old one has just had seen better days, but most of what I do is digital. So for me, this experience of like making ceramics and painting on wood with acrylic is something I have a lot of experience with. It's just not something I do a whole lot of anymore. And I love it. It's my happy place. It's the best way to make art, like being messy and getting clay and mm, yeah. on myself. It's like, there's something that's why I became an artist in the first place. But, um, so what I get to do right now is go to my studio every day and just make work that I want to make for this show. So that's mostly what I'm doing and like messing around with ceramics and having it be okay that they're not perfect because I'm not selling them most of them and no client is telling me how to make them look. And I just get to go be creative in the way I want to be creative. So much of what I do is for clients or books where I have a turned in a proposal and then I have to like do the thing that I've said I was going to do. And 
Um, and that's all really a great way to make a living. I still get to be super creative in those, in those ways of working and that's how I make a living. But, um, but there's so much freedom in just making personal work. So that's really what this year is about. So I am wrapping up a few projects that started last year. Um, and I've got a couple, like I said, like work with some nonprofit organizations that I'm doing. Um, and, um, so art wise, you know, I'm just like kind of doing whatever I feel like every day. I mean, I do have to fill a gallery in June, but, um, but I'm, I'm getting there and, um, I'm making a lot of mistakes and making a lot of crap work that goes in the corner that no one ever sees. That's another part that people don't talk about. Um, and it's been, and it's not stressful because I have the time, the luxury of the time to sort of do that kind of messy experimentation kind of work. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty happy about that. Um, and I'm traveling yeah. a little bit this year, um, oh, good. um, to, you know, and some of that travel will involve some art making too. So that's going to be super fun. That sounds all amazing. And I'm, I'm yeah. so happy to hear it. Where, where is the, um, in June, where is this going to be a public gallery? Yeah. So it's a gallery in Portland called Stephanie Chafas projects and the show opens on June 6th and it'll be up, I think for like a month and a half. Um, her shows currently run pretty long. And, um, so if you're in Portland this summer, come, come see it. Yeah. Um, my sister-in-law, uh, Vanessa, if you're listening, go, go. Go see it because you're you live in Portland and you don't have an excuse. <laughs> um, well, uh, Lisa, we always uh, wrap up the show talking about our empathy heroes. These are people we know personally. It could be even authors we love or characters from books or movies. I will go first to give you a moment to think on your empathy hero. My empathy hero this week is. Uh, I think probably someone I've used before, but it, he came to mind because I watched uh, the adaptation of one of his books on screen uh, this past week. Uh, it's Jack London, the author of some of my favorite books I read as a kid. Um, I'm, I've told this story all the time on the show, but like I'm very much drawn to characters out in the woods with dogs <laughs> you know so call of the wild white fang where the red fern grows like all of those sort of adventure tales i've always enjoyed and we uh my wife and i and our friends raymond loretta recently saw uh the call of the wild uh with harrison ford it, it's it's a little cheesy but it was actually really sweet where did that come out what's that what year did that come out? It just came out. It just oh, came out like last. Yeah, it's like okay. a new adaptation. Right. And it's actually really sweet. And I cried a bit throughout. You know, it's very, it's very heartwarming. It's PG, you know, so it's very heartwarming. And, you know, they don't, they pulled, you know, all of the punches, you know, of like, of a, a traditional Jack London story would have. But it's, it's, it's very sweet. And it just made me think about how Jack London's characters I connected to so much as a kid and, and feeling alone as a kid and feeling not safe as a kid and having that safety in his characters and in his, uh, you know, his dogs as well. So Jack London is my empathy hero this week. How about you? Well, you know, I have so many, um, people in my life who have modeled empathy for me. And I just, I actually, the, the person that I often talk about as my role model is actually my wife. Mm. Um, she is, uh, actually one of her coworkers told her, 
they were on a retreat where they all got really vulnerable with each other as part of some of the activities they were doing together. It was like a team building retreat. And um, one of her coworkers told her, like, you are one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. And I have often thought that about her as well. Um, she's uh, very um, willing to take on um, other people's perspectives and um, very um, hesitant to judge and um, is the most comfortable with people who are different from her of almost anyone I've ever met. So we'll be, say, say we go to a dinner party that's hosted by a friend and there's some other people there we don't know. And say there's someone in the room who has an annoying personality. <laughs> and um, I will come home and be like, oh my God, that guy was so annoying. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And be like, oh, I just thought he was kind of, you know, um, interesting or Different, whatever. Or... She, won't, or she won't have noticed. Yeah. And there's this way that she sort of gives everyone space to be themselves. That has been so wonderful for me to watch. We've been together for almost 12 years. And um, so I'm, you know, I've, I've gotten very used to it. I mean, it's not like she doesn't come home occasionally and say that person was really annoying. Right, right. <laughs> she is human after all. You know, she is human for sure. But there's this way that she is so generous in terms of, how she allows people to be themselves, even if that person is is different, and how she kind of um, uh, you know is um, is also just very when other people are going through difficulty, how um, how easy it is for her to be present with with other people in their in sort of in their painful moments, and that is. Um, I just think it's a beautiful thing. And so I have, I live with a role model, I'm lucky to say. And I also just have a, a ton of mentors in that arena. I could go on and on, but she's kind of my number one in many ways. Yeah. And, <laughs> and sorry, I missed her name. Clay. Clay. Just like, um, yeah. Well, yeah. she sounds amazing. And that is a beautiful gift that we can give each other. And, and, you know, I'm grateful that you have her, uh, in your life. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Lisa, uh, where can the feely humans out there uh, connect with you, uh, buy your books, all of that, all of that sort of stuff? So the two best places to find me are my website, which is lisacongdon.com. And on there, you can see the classes I teach and the um, my online shop where you can buy things that I make and um, find all the links to my social media. The Really, the only social media I'm on is Instagram. I'm not on Facebook anymore. So, um, and that's really the other place to find me is at Lisa Congdon. Just my, my first name and my last name. Um, <laughs> advantage of being an early adopter. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Get your name. Or in your case, um, you, your your Instagram name isn't your actual name, but you, you probably would have no problem getting it because your name is unusual. Right, um, right. But... Um, but yeah, that's that's the other place to find me. And I, I post there, like I said, almost every weekday, um, um, my art, my thoughts on life, um, and um, and some tidbits from my personal life in stories as well. So so that if people want to connect, that's where to find me. Lovely. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being a guest on Yumi Empathy. And I, I really 
you truly are an inspiration and your wisdom is so full and, and comes from the heart. And I just so appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. This was really um, a great conversation. Oh, happy to have you. And listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh.